Greetings, and welcome to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn, but don't always have time to study. I'm your host, Rory Roberts, and this week, I fell into a little bit of a rabbit hole, or should I say, squirrel hole, when I ran across some articles on Atlas Obscura, when I ran across an article on Atlas Obscura, and then another, and another, and they were so fascinating, I just had to share. So we're going to start with one called Squirrels Organize Their Nuts to Make Them Easier to Remember, because mixed nuts are for amateurs. This is by Kelsey Kennedy from the Atlas Obscura website. Squirrels may seem to stash their food reserves willy-nilly as they rush to make sure they have enough for the winter and to keep their caches hidden from freeloaders like other squirrels, birds, and even bears. But according to a new study, sometimes they actually use a system that organizes those stored nuts by size and species. They use a technique psychologists call chunking, in which similar items, whether nuts or pieces of information, are lumped into more manageable and memorable chunks. The study's fieldwork didn't take the researchers very far afield at all. They tracked 45 squirrels on campus at the University of California, Berkeley for close to two years and fed their subjects nuts, almonds, hazelnuts, pecans, and walnuts in different sequences and places to see how they cached the windfall. The the scientists found the squirrels were careful to hide the food in new places when it was given out in different places, but that they cached the nuts by type and sometimes by size when they were distributed from a central location. Squirrels may use chunking the same way you put away your groceries. You might put fruit on one shelf and vegetables on another. Then, when you're looking for an onion, you only have to look in one place, not every shelf in the kitchen, study co-author Lucia Jacobs said in a press release. That means the squirrels don't have to put as much energy into remembering where they stashed their pecans. Squirrels aren't the only animals that use chunking. Lab rats do it to remember where different types of food rewards are in a maze. Other animals have also developed strategies for remembering cache locations. In one study, scrub jays remembered where they stored waxworms based on where they stashed the food, based on when they stashed the food. For animals like these squirrels that cache thousands of nuts and seeds each year, knowing where everything is stored is critical to survival. Another article, the one that set me down this path, is titled When Squirrels Were One of America's Most Popular Pets by Natalie Zarelli. In 1722, a pet squirrel named Mungo passed away. It was a tragedy. Mungo escaped its confines and met its fate at the teeth of a dog. Benjamin Franklin, friend of the owner, immortalized the squirrel with a tribute. Few squirrels were better accomplished, for he had a good education, had traveled far, and seen much of the world, Franklin wrote, adding, Thou art fallen by the fangs of wanton, cruel ranger. Mourning a squirrel's death wasn't as uncommon as you might think. When Franklin wrote Mungo's eulogy in the 18th and 19th centuries, squirrels were fixtures in American homes, especially for children. While colonial Americans kept many types of wild animals as pets, squirrels were the most popular, according to Catherine Greer's Pets in America, being relatively easy to keep. 
By the 1700s, a golden era of squirrel ownership was in full swing. Squirrels were sold in markets and found in the homes of wealthy urban families, and portraits of well-to-do children holding a reserved, polite upper-class squirrel attached to a gold chain leash were proudly displayed, some of which are currently at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Most pet squirrels were American gray squirrels, though red squirrels and flying squirrels were also around, enchanting the country with their devil-may-care attitudes and fluffy bodies. By the 19th century, a canon of squirrel care literature emerged for the enthusiast. In the 1851 book Domestic Pets, Their Habits and Management, Jane Loudon writes more about squirrels as pets than rabbits, and devotes an entire chapter to the beautiful little creature, very agile and graceful in its movements. Squirrels may be taught to jump from one hand to the other to search for a hidden nut, and it soon knows its name and the persons who feed it. Ludin also waxes on their habits, like jumping around a room and peeping out from wooden eaves, writing that an instance is recorded of no less than 17 lumps of sugar being found in the cornice of a drawing room in which a squirrel had been kept, besides innumerable nuts, pieces of biscuit. Ludon's advice, when your squirrel is not running around the room, provide it with a tin-lined cage that has a running wheel. Leisure Hour Monthly, meanwhile, in 1859, advised to feed it a fig or a date now and then, and that you should start your squirrel-raising adventure with those procured directly from the nest when possible. The unnamed author's own pet squirrels, Dick and Peter, had the freedom of his bedroom and plenty of nuts to store away. Let your pet squirrels crack their own nuts, my young squirrel fanciers, the author wrote. While many people captured their pet squirrels from the wild in the 1800s, squirrels were also sold in pet shops, a then burgeoning industry that that today constitutes a $70 billion business. One home manual from 1883, for example, explained that any squirrel could be bought from your local bird breeder. But not unlike some shops today, these pet stores could have a dark side. Greer writes that shop owners face the possibility that they sold animals to customers who would neglect or abuse them, or that their trade in a particular species could endanger its future in the wild. Keeping pet squirrels has a downside for humans too, which eventually became clear. Despite their owners' best attempts at taming them, they're still wild animals. As time wore on, squirrels were increasingly viewed as pests. By the 1910s, squirrels became so despised in California that the state issued a widespread public attack on the once-adored creatures. From the 1920s through the 1970s, many states slowly adopted wildlife, wildlife conservation and exotic pet laws, which prohibited keeping squirrels at home. Today, experts and enthusiasts alike warn that squirrels don't always make ideal pets, mainly because of their finicky diet, space requirements, and scratchy claws. None of this, of course, will deter the most determined squirrel owner. Fans of Bob Ross might remember his pet squirrel named Peapod, and some squirrel owners are rekindling the obsession by making their pets Instagram famous. Still, wild squirrels surely agree. It's probably best we're now mostly leaving them to the forest. Uh, If you would, 
be interested in seeing some interesting pictures, uh, I will have the link to these articles in the show notes. And tying back to a past Blue Stocking episode, there is a Hans Holbein painting of a lady with a squirrel and a starling, two wild animals that can be super charming but might not be the best pets. Our last Atlas Obscura article is, In 1918, California Drafted Children into a War on Squirrels by Dave Gilson. Does this remind anyone of the Emu War? In April 1918, as American doughboys faced down the Germans in France, California schoolchildren were enlisted to open a new Western Front. We have enemies here at home more destructive perhaps than some of the enemies our boys are fighting in the trenches. State Horticulture Commissioner George H. Heck warned in an impassioned call-up for school soldiers. He exhorted children to do their part for Uncle Sam by organizing a company of soldiers in your class or in your school and marching out to destroy their foe, the Squirrel Army. This children's crusade was part of Squirrel Week, a seven-day frenzy in which California tried to kill off its ground squirrels. The state's farmers and ranchers had long struggled to decimate the critters, which were seen as pests and a source of pestilence, particularly the bubonic plague. The burrowing foragers, not to be confused with tree squirrels, devoured an estimated $30 million worth of crops annually, about $480 million in, today do- in today's dollars. Squirrel Week was the state's first attempt at mass eradication. The anti-rodent campaign was announced in March 1918 at a meeting of the state's horticultural commissioners as they launched on grain-fed gophers. Liberal portions of beef were served to those who did not like gopher meat, reported the San Francisco Chronicle. California set aside $40,000 from its emergency wartime funds for the campaign, which included an anti-squirrel publicity blitz. The state printed up 34,000 posters and distributed 500,000 leaflets. What made Squirrel Week unique was its reliance on kids to succeed where adults had failed. Heck's call to arms appeared in a pamphlet titled, Kill the Squirrels, which sought to stir patriotic youngsters to sprinkle rodenticide outside squirrel burrows. In the pamphlet's opening illustration, a young woman holding a pail of poison barley invites eager kids to get to work. Children, we must kill the squirrels to save food, she smiles, but use poisons carefully. The pamphlet included a recipe for strychnine-laced grain as well as suggestions for other extermination methods, such as shooting, drowning, and poison gas. Just in case civic duty wasn't motivation enough, there were also rewards. $50, which is $800 in today's money, to each of the elementary and high schools whose pupils killed the most squirrels, and $30 and $20 to the runners-up. California's war on squirrels was framed as an extension of United States' declaration of war on Germany a year earlier. Part of this was practical. Future President Herbert Hoover, then the United States Food Administrator, offered his hearty approval of the effort to save vast quantities of food which might otherwise be used for support of our armies abroad. But it also made for great propaganda. 
In the corners of the Kill the Squirrels cartoon, two members of the Squirrel Army stood at attention wearing Pickelhalben, the distinctive spiked helmets of the German Army. Another Squirrel Week poster showed a Teutonic Squirrel family wearing spiked helmets and iron crosses. The father squirrel sported an oddly upturned mustache, just like Kaiser Wilhelm's. An article about Squirrel Week in the Lompoc Journal took the martial theme and ran with it, hailing the growing army amassing casualties in initial engagements against the enemy. All the killing devices of modern warfare will be used in the effort to annihilate the Squirrel Army, including gas, it continued. Don't wait to be drafted. The campaign also enlisted the help of Four Minutemen, volunteers who delivered short speeches to rally public support for the war effort. Anti-squirrel talking points were issued so they might convince farmers and ranchers to go out and kill the little ally of the Kaiser. <clears throat> for example, the best squirrel is the dead squirrel. The Hotel California board bill for ground squirrels in 1917 was $30 million, yet unpaid. The squirrel does not recognize daylight saving. He uses it all. He preys on our crops in countless hordes. He fills the ranks of the killed in true military fashion. Why hesitate? We can get him. How? Poison him, gas him, drown him, shoot him, trap him, submarine him. Are you not willing then to give your wholehearted support to this statewide movement to kill the squirrel? <sighs> Children were asked to verify their kills by bringing in squirrel tails to their schools. Some impatient exterminators delivered their trophies directly to Commissioner Heck even before Squirrel Week kicked off, causing a pronounced odor in his office. He requested that children not send him any more tails and instructed his county commissioners to bury all tails after tallying them. By the time Squirrel Week ended on May 4th, Children across the state had turned in 104,509 tails, though this was thought to represent a fraction of the total casualties. Even after the contest ended, the Commission of Horticulture reported that kids' enthusiasm for killing squirrels continued for an indefinite period. During an anti-squirrel campaign in Lassen County later in the year, one girl brought in 3,780 tails and a boy brought in 3,770. The state considered Squirrel Week a great success. Crop yields reportedly bounced back in areas cleared of ground squirrels, but total victory remained elusive. Nearly a century later, ground squirrels are still considered prolific, expensive pests. The militaristic edge of the Squirrel War of 1918 hasn't entirely faded. A contemporary University of California webpage about the damage caused by ground squirrels features an image of a squirrel wearing a helmet and taking aim with a bazooka. All is not quiet on this western front. A quick note, there are also tons of wonderful and interesting propaganda posters from this time on the Atlas Obscura website. I will of course be posting that link in the show notes. One last article from the New York Times by Avi Steinberg, Letter of Recommendation for Squirrels. 
The philosopher William James once posed the following problem. A squirrel runs around the trunk of a tree, and a man, trying to see the squirrel, chases it. But in the end, the man is unable to catch up to the squirrel. All he sees is bark and more bark. He goes round the tree, sure enough, and the squirrel is on the tree, the philosopher says. But does the man go round the squirrel or not? This question boils down to a logistical, or, if you're of another kind of temperament, metaphysical conundrum. But regardless of how you answer the squirrel problem, the key just might be its perfectly ordinary premise. It assumes proximity between human and squirrel, and it also assumes that this close relationship means something. And why not? Because our daily paths are inevitably crossed by running squirrels, shouldn't squirrels run through our philosophical questions too? James aside, we all too often ignore our squirrels and their meanings. Even though we don't give it much thought, we are a party to an unusual social contract with the squirrel. She is the only mammal who lives lives free and works in open, direct contact with humans. Rats and raccoons hide in the shadows. Coyotes lurk on the periphery. The deer and the bunny might as well occupy a kingdom of thin air. Dogs and cats, noble souls though they are, have been turned into a class of indentured clowns. Squirrels, though, are right there with us. They live on our level and toil on the same schedule as humans in every season. They share our approach to life's problems. They save and plan ahead obsessively. They make deposits and debits, of nuts and seeds mostly, build highways, returning to well-known routes in and around trees, manage 30-year mortgages, they can inhabit a single nest for that many years, refrigerate their staples, in their case pine cones, and dry their delicacies for storage, mushrooms, as we do. They work the day shift and live in walk-up apartments, and like stock traders, they gamble in the marketplace. While most animals breed as food becomes available, squirrels have developed the ability to predict a future seed glut and reproduce accordingly, like bullish investors. Squirrels are scarce in literature, but the few appearances they have made are telling. Herman Melville identified the flying squirrel as the fiction writer's model for a realistic character. The creature is exactly as weird and incongruous as an actual person. One of Kafka's most unsung creatures was a squirrel whose bushy tail was famous in all the forests and whom he describes in a jot in his notebooks as always traveling, always searching. However, it couldn't talk about this not because it lacked the power of speech, but because it had absolutely no time. Our respect for squirrels as fellow commuters is all the more extraordinary when we consider that they belong to the hated rodentia order. But squirrels' stylish outerwear and good manners make them kindred city folk, so much so that we pay them the ultimate urban compliment. We totally ignore them. Yes, there's tension. The squirrel is not man's best friend, but more like an honored frenemy. Squirrels are probably a bit too similar to us for comfort. They are workaholics, road ragers, and inadequate dads. They can be territorial and unkind to outsiders. They have been known to help themselves to the fruits of private gardens. I know this from experience. When I was young and orthodox, a squirrel absconded with my yarmulke, 
which I had taken off my head while playing basketball. I tracked her to the woods to her home tree, and I watched her clamber up to the snug opening of her den, a gap between the branches, through which she gleefully, or so it seemed to me, disappeared, along with my former Yarmulka. Squirrel panic is not unknown in our country. According to an anti-squirrel website, John C. Inglis, former deputy director of the NSA, supposedly said, Frankly, the number one threat experienced to date by the U.S. electrical grid is squirrels. Of course, the counter-argument is so ethically unambiguous, it's no wonder an NSA officer would miss it. The problem, as always, is our own rapacious overuse of energy, our own monstrous overbuilding of inf infrastructure, not the few squirrels who are the ensnared victims of it. We would do well to take small acts of squirrel sabotage as a gift, a free warning about overstepping boundaries and a reminder of the need to share. Minor clashes with squirrels, the occasional breaches in the grid or the loss of a, of a yarmulke here or, or a kumquat there serve only as reminders that we can, if we choose, afford to live in respectful peace with our neighbors. We have made a truce with the squirrel. And we have done so because, in our own animal hearts, we know we'd lose something precious if Earth's trees, our own former homes, no longer chuckled with the sounds of mammal home life. Gardens are meant to be shared. And as for my former Yarmulka, it was put to better and more lasting use as a nest installation for, insulation for the winter. Let us not forget history. When European settlers landed in the New World, they nearly hunted the gray squirrel into extinction. So who, I ask, is the pest? Thank you again for listening to Blue Stocking. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and will continue to listen in future. I've got some exciting things planned. The music that you hear in the background is from Kevin McLeod of the Incompetech website. That information will be posted in the show notes as well. Thank you. Have a great day.